The views and discussion expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of the hosts of the program, WMKV, Maple Knoll Communities, its staff, or management. The information and advice presented are educational in nature and not intended to be taken as legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Always consult with your own legal, accounting, or other professional before making any investment. Welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, a show to help you gain financial freedom by investing in real estate. Brought to you by the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati and the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing on 89.3 FM WMKV. And now your host, Vena Jones-Cox. Good afternoon. This is actually not Vena Jones-Cox today. This is Jim Shapiro filling in for Vena. She's traveling, uh, teaching uh, real estate investing in another part of the country today. Uh, I'm excited to be here today. I filled it for her a bunch of times, and it's always a lot of fun. Uh, I'm here today with a special guest, uh, Deb Jetter, with the Housing Opportunities Made Equal organization, or HOME. Uh, HOME is the local you know, Cincinnati metropolitan area fair housing organization. And Deb's here to talk about fair housing questions, and I may ask her a few about Housing Mediation Service, which is a related organization that RIA and HOME and the Apartment Association sponsor. So uh, I'll quickly give you a couple of updates. Uh, we're sponsored by the Real Estate Investor Association of Greater Cincinnati, a wonderful organization for learning about becoming a successful real estate investor, for getting the education you need to to know how to do it, to know how to make money at it, to know how to do it legally, the kinds of things we're going to talk about today with Deb. If you have questions, please call them in to, in the Cincinnati area, 513-772-9658, 772-9658, or outside the Cincinnati area at one 772 9658 uh, You can also email them to com or go to her website there, and I'm hoping, although I'm, I'm not sure if Matt's there to forward them to me uh, or if that's been set up. So I may not get them, and, and I'll know once the first one comes in. Otherwise, please feel free to call them in. So, Deb, welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing. Oh, thank you, Jim. Good to be with you. Thank you. Uh, I've got a whole bunch of questions, and you and I have spoken dozens of times, hundreds of times about some of these topics. I call home regularly. Mm-hmm. I'm a landlord, a property manager. I manage over 130 properties. And when I want to know if I'm doing something right, mm-hmm. I call home. And I encourage anyone in our business to, whether you're in Cincinnati and you call home, at what's, what's your phone number down there? Our number is area code 513-721-4663. 4663, which is H-O-M-E on your mm-hmm. phone. Yes. If you're not in our area, find your local organization, the Fair Housing Organization. They are a wonderful resource, as you're going to hear today from Deb. Uh, I would rather know what I'm doing and do it right. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it's a great – they're a wonderful organization. They're very helpful because there's a lot of things you can trip up on in, in real estate. It's a, There's a lot of rules and regulations about how things should be done, and especially on fair housing. And uh, – the cost of doing it wrong can be pretty expensive if you get involved with a fair housing suit. 
So the objective of all good professionals in this business is to be educated and informed and uh, and fair. Yes. Because it's really about being fair to the public as we offer housing. Because uh, we're going to talk about some questions that have come in. And you'd all be amazed how many people are still out there doing things that are grossly illegal, grossly discriminatory. Uh, I've heard questions from people that that astound me, renters who are calling and asking me things. So let me start with a few uh, questions. One of the first ones that's been a big topic, I know, in your organization in the Mm -hmm. last few years is the whole issue of reasonable accommodation. Uh Uh-huh. you know that you know people will say things like, "I don't understand what I need to do. We don't like making exceptions to our policies. You know, what does a landlord need to understand or know about a reasonable accommodation as they as they work with uh, prospects interested in their homes? Well, let me first explain the reason for um, this change in the law. Uh, when you look at buildings, whether they're single family, um, or whether they're multifamily dwellings, you'll see a lot of barriers for people with disabilities. So the purpose of the reasonable accommodations uh, that are in our law basically helps people with disabilities have barriers removed. Um, When someone requests that from a landlord for reasonable modifications or accommodations, then within reason the landlord should grant that. So if I never ask you as a person with a disability, even though you might see that as an applicant or resident I have that disability, then you don't have to worry about it. But if I come to you as a landlord and I say, Mr. Landlord, I need accommodations, and an accommodation is any change in policy services provided by a landlord, then that landlord has to consider it for that particular applicant or resident. There is no fee that the landlord can charge to the resident or applicant. So if a person needs that, let's say you have a no pet policy. And with that no pet policy, a person with a disability may come to you and say, I understand you have a no pet policy, but I have an assist animal. And this animal for me is my eyes. So because this animal does the work that that person can't do, there has to be made exceptions for that individual to have equal and enjoyable housing opportunity in their um, place of residency. If that's not provided, then that individual, the housing provider, um, the person who manages the property or owns it can be legally challenged for denying that opportunity. A modification that's reasonable is any change in structure. It can be interior or exterior. that allows that individual with a disability, once they request it, to have full quality of life in the unit in which they're living. That could be exteriorly ramps that are put up at the cost of the resident or applicant. Landlord doesn't have to so pay the tenant for that. Doesn't, the, the landlord doesn't have to pay to put up a ramp. Right. But the te- but if the tenant says, I need a ramp and I'm willing to pay for it, the landlord cannot say, well, no, we don't want you to change our house. Yes. The individual that's making the request uh, has to follow local zoning codes to put that ramp in safely, uh, follow any uh, guidelines to put it up as it should be for safe use. However, <clears throat> in a situation where the individual does put up the ramp. They pay for it. Once they leave, they don't have to t- have to pay for it to take that ramp down. So it's on the burden of the landlord to remove any exterior change 
for the purpose of the individual with a disability. If it's used by other tenants, that ramp now becomes the responsibility in common areas for the landlord to maintain. Tenant put it up, but it's now the responsibility for the landlord to maintain that ramp. For snow removal, for making sure it's safe for everybody to use, it's no longer the tenant's responsibility, but it becomes the responsibility of the landlord because it's in a common area. Everybody's using it, so now he or she has to maintain it. Benefiting from it. Now, reasonable. Mm -hmm. What if someone says, uh, in addition to the ramp, which I'll pay for, um, I have a wheelchair and I need you to widen the doorways to the rooms in the house? Would Mm -hmm. that be... Yeah, that might be pretty expensive. Yeah, that's, that might be changing the structure of a place, you know, for uh, an individual to widen every doorway or what have you. That may not be reasonable depending on the structure of the property. So uh, the structure is a case-by-case basis as okay. to what alterations may be considered reasonable or not reasonable. Things like putting handlebars up around a toilet for a person who has has to have those modifications made in their their bathroom facility, uh, handlebars around the bathtub or shower. Those are reasonable. Things such as lowering light switches, um, environmental controls such as heating, those types of things, those are reasonable. Even lowering kitchen countertops and also cabinets, that could be reasonable, okay, depending on the structure, et cetera. But the tenant pays for all those things. Once they leave or get ready to depart from that property, then the landlord may ask for them to put it back. Anything that doesn't allow a non-handicapped person to to use it. So countertops, kitchen cabinets, or things that that person would put back. Light switches, heat controls, that they wouldn't have to pay to put back because anyone can use that. So these changes are basically to assist any person with a disability to remove barriers that keep them out or to prevent them from having full quality of life living uh, situations. Okay. Well, I think we're up for a break here, so we'll be back in a few moments. If you have call questions, please call them in to 513-772-9658 or 1-877-772-9658. Hi, and welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. This is Jim Shapiro filling in for Vena Jones-Cox today on this beautiful spring day. Spring came early this year. Uh, I'm here with Deb Jetter from Housing Opportunities Made Equal. Let me, uh, I have another question for you uh, related to that subject. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've heard, this is a question uh, uh, that was called in previously. I heard that under ADA, Americans with Disabilities Act, you no longer have to make accommodations for emotional support animals just for actual working service dogs like guide dogs. Does that mean I can now turn down a tenant's request to keep an emotional support cat in a no-pet building? Absolutely not. Um, A lot of people get the ADA confused with the fair housing law that protects the rights of people with disabilities. The ADA covers commercial and public facilities. So if I go into a restaurant, okay, and I have a guide dog, Um, they have a right to say that I can bring the dog in, but if I have an emotional support animal under the ADA, they now have a right to say I can only bring in um, a dog, a service animal. So this limits the types of animals that come into places like restaurants or public facilities. Looking at the Fair Housing Act, the ADA complements 
the Fair Housing Act. So in public facilities like places for um, for um, rent, like the rental office, et cetera, those are covered by, by the ADA, making that accessible to the public. When it comes to fair housing law covering residential properties, that's the Fair Housing Act. So that allows a person with a disability to have any animal that gives it support when it comes to service or emotional support. I could have a cat. I could have a bird. I could have anything that presents itself to me within reason that provides that emotional support for me as a person with a disability. Okay, great. Uh, I was also just told the askvina.com I won't be getting today, but if you want to send an email, you can send an email question into askvina at gmail.com, and they'll get forwarded to me, and I can forward your questions. And uh, let's see, I've got another question that came in. What about children? Do I really have to allow kids in a newly remodeled building that are marketing to young professionals? Okay. Um, individuals that may have buildings, okay, where they think, well, I can limit kids because I designed it and I put all this money in it. If it's not exempt by the fair housing law for older persons, which houses people in multifamily dwellings, four or more units, for individuals who are 55 years or older, then I cannot say no to families with children. Okay. So if my building has not been designated for that age category of individuals 55 and up, then yes, my be- beautifully decorated home or um, complex has to allow families with children in it. I uh, used to have a, I still have a property I manage in Silverton, uh, community in Cincinnati. It's a five-bed, three-bath house. And I had a woman call me up one time and say, do you accept children? And I said to her, ma'am, this is a five-bed, three-bathroom house. Of course I accept children. She said, oh, you wouldn't believe the number of people I've called who say, no, they don't want kids. And I told her, "You realize?" I said to her, do you realize that that's a, a fair housing violation? And she said, I know, but I just want to find a place to live, and I'm not interested in getting involved with the hassle of suing mm-hmm. somebody. But clearly she was being discriminated against. Uh, and we see uh, people who think they're running to families with children set limits that are illegal under the law. And I want to talk about that because we yeah, find a lot we find a lot of people doing this. Sometimes we see in the Craig's um, um, list people doing all kinds of things. And also when we monitor the housing industry, um, you might have an owner saying, I'll rent to children, but I only take children three and under. That's a fair housing violation because the Fair Housing Act, familial status, families with children, protects individuals who are families that has an adult 18 and up with children 17 and under. So if I turn down someone over three, then I'm kicking out all those children over three from not living in my in my property. So that's a violation. Also, you'll see landlords who say, um, well, I don't allow individuals that uh, have families to, to allow their, their daughter and their son to share a bedroom. Okay, so... I want you to have a, 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 a extra bedroom for you know the the two kids that you're going to be putting into that facility. That's illegal to do. If they qualify, two persons per bedroom, as highly suggested by HUD, then family of four can live in that unit. Doesn't matter if it's an adult with three children or two adults with two kids. If that family chooses to have their daughter and their teenage son share a bedroom. 
That's perfectly fine. Landlords so the landlord cannot... doesn't get to tell that family how they should live their, in their Absolutely. home. Absolutely. What is the maximum number? You said two per bedroom? HUD suggests a rule of two per bedroom. So if any landlord or property management company sets a rule of two per bedroom, that's a good rule. And it doesn't matter the size of the bedroom or what have you. I had heard it was two per bedroom plus one. That it could be the living be. room or dining room. It used to be that rule. Oh, when did that change? Oh, years ago. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, so Learning something new here <laughs> myself. So in this situation, two per bedroom is what most investors uh, do set for their occupancy standard. Now, you mentioned uh, buildings that are four-family or larger uh, can become senior housing. 55 and older. What What is the process to go about? Let's say someone's bought a four-family or a six-family building, and they want to make it senior housing. Mm-hmm. What do they need to do to make that happen and be in compliance with the law? Well, let's say I'm a new investor and I buy a property with four units or more. Um, the law allows me, HUD regulations, allows me to self-designate. So I may designate that property. I might have tenants in it that are family. So I may self-designate that property to be a building that is set aside for families, excuse me, for persons 55 years of age or older. In that self-designation, all I need is a statement in my record saying that on January 4, 2012, the property at ABC um, Norwood Drive has been designated for property to house individuals who are 55 years of older as specified by the fair housing law. So what I've done, I dated the time that I did it. I have the property location, city location, you know, that type of thing. And also that the designation is for this particular age category as specified by fair housing law. If I begin this process, I have to be consistent with it. I can't say, well, I'm not getting the quota, so I'm going to switch over and rent to families with children. I can't have a flip-flop situation. The HUD um, regulatory uh, guidelines will allow me to have a specific time to do that. The other persons who are in the building, let's say I'm changing from families with children to this designated property of old housing older persons. That um, process would be after the lease is up, I notify my tenants, letting them know as of, you know, January um, 5th, I think I said, 2012, the property will be converted to senior housing. So in that particular situation, your lease as it ends will no longer be renewed for that change. Now, when you designate a property senior housing, that means that a certain percentage of the people could actually be below 55. Isn't there some number? So you might have a, a 60-year-old with a 40-year-old child living with them, and that wouldn't necessarily violate the 55 and older? Um, there's, there's something a- called the 20-80% uh, ratio. So in a property where I um, have 80%, of the units occupied by a single head of household who's 55 years of age or older, they may have living with them an adult 18 and up, could be a child, could be a grandchild, and um, a spouse. And the other 20% of those units could be for persons who are uh, 18 and above. So that gives me a mixture of adults where I don't have a, have to have 100%. All right. I've got a question that was uh, sent in from Anna in Middletown. 
I recently called an apartment for rent sign and asked what the rent was. The landlady told me it was $375 for one person, $400 for two, or $425 for three. My understanding was that this is illegal. Is that true? Well, it can put a landlord in a very uh, uncomfortable situation. College students, for example, often have um, that that type of uh, charge if if there's a uh, roommate situation and the person is an adult, they will set different uh, prices for the apartment. Mm -hmm. But when you come to a family and you're charging a family, you know, different rates because they have X number of people in their family, that's against the Fair Housing Act. So if I charge a family those prices, I'd really be in trouble with um, the fair housing law. Okay. Now what about uh, if you have a lease that says, you know, we're, we're renting to uh, this family of four, they're designated in the lease, and then it says if additional people move in, we can charge additional rent because they were not authorized. If we agree to let them stay, we're allowed to revise the rent. Is that? If someone rents a property and they qualify okay, by occupancy standards, have a four-bedroom, and there are um, eight people in that unit, okay, comprised to be a family as specified by the law, okay, that could be a traditional family, mother, father, children, 17 and under, could be a a woman who's pregnant, uh, people who are uh, guardians with children 17 and under, could also be individuals who um, have uh, single heads of household. If that family meets that criteria, okay, uh, and the occupancy standards for that unit are all full, then, you know, they need to check with the landlord to see if additional family members are okay for him or her. If the occupancy standards have not been full, let's say I have a four-bedroom but I only have two people living in it, and I need to tell Mr. Landlord, um, I'm getting custody of my two children, now it's going to be four well, that's okay because the standards of occupancy are fine. So based on so we on, couldn't charge additional rent because they moved not more people for in. a family. No, okay. families are protected by a certain price. I can't keep charging you if you're a part of my family, and that family's protected by the fair housing law. You know, then you can't charge me because my my children that I got you know from a custody battle they're coming to live with me. Now, what if I've got a a single mom and three kids, and then her boyfriend moves in. Well, he's not a part of that family. So I could say anyone else who moves in under that circumstance potentially... He's not a part of the family as specified by the fair housing law. Okay. That description of family gives you uh, protection. Interesting. All right. uh, I think we've got another break coming up here. So, uh, again, uh, this is Jim Shapiro with Real Life Real Estate Investing. If you have questions, please call them in. We, We welcome your questions at... 513-772-9658 or 877-772-9658 outside the Cincinnati area. Hi, and welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. This is Jim Shapiro here today with Deb Jetter from Housing Opportunities Made Equal. Deb, I have a question here, and it's a doozy. This Mm -hmm. one came in. uh, It says... I don't want to give my name or city. You'll see why when I ask the question. I sent a prospective tenant by a property that I have under rehab. The contractor, who is not my employee but rather is a 1099 independent contractor, happened to be there when the prospect showed up. 
and apparently told the prospect, a white woman, that the neighborhood was, and I quote, full of, insert N-word here. It happens that this property, this prospect, this woman, has two children who are mixed race. So needless to say, she was extremely offended. I assured her that I do not discriminate based on race or anything else, and I'm afraid she's going to report me. Obviously, I did not and would not instruct the contractor to even talk to a prospect, much less say something like this. How much trouble am I in, or what can I do about it at this point? Well, as the owner of that property, you can be in a lot of trouble. And this is where property investors um, really need to have any vendors that work for them, contractors, to basically understand that they run a business. And if they violate the fair housing law that they must comply to as that property owner, then not only is the owner responsible, but the vendor can also be responsible. Uh, I know in large property management situations, they have the vendor or contractor sign an agreement recognizing the fact that they have an obligation to fair housing compliance. Anyone who works on their property must honor that, respecting their customers, which are their their residents or any applicants looking for property, and that if any violation occurs, then that vendor or the contractor can be challenged also, and they'll be responsible for any fair housing costs that the owner has to uh, pay. So that's something very serious that they need to check to see if whoever they hires, you know, honors that fair housing compliance. I'll tell you, that's something that I do. I rehab a lot of properties and have crews working on all these properties I manage. And I talk to everyone. Whenever I bring on a new contractor, I have a conversation with them. And I say, you need to understand, because often I want people to go. And I want that, you know, I want to have some applications at the house. I want people to start looking at it because I want to get houses filled as soon as possible. And I don't mind them going through while there's work being done. And I will tell those contractors, you need to realize that you represent us and we're in the housing business. And you need to be very sensitive to the kinds of things you say and make no reference to anything in this, you know, about those sorts of topics, race, gender, uh, anything else. You know, you can show them the house, you can give them the application, you can give them my name and number, and your opinion about anything else is going to be uh, something I want you to keep to yourself. Great. Uh, and I encourage everyone to do that. It's and it, and it sets a message, it sets a tone for the people that work for me Good. that I care about this, and I, I'm going to hold them accountable, and I'm going to hold the, the boss accountable for what his crew does. So he's got some $10 an hour guy who's not too swift. You know, he shouldn't be talking to our prospects. Great. Uh, we have a call, uh, Eileen from Cincinnati. Yes. Hi. Hi. Um, you were just uh, you were just talking. Of, I don't rehab. I don't do any of that. Uh, but I love the show. Great. Um, anyway, and I'm not a renter anymore either. <laughs> <laughs> but that's okay because I had wanted children in the household. But then when I found children that weren't so good, and I wasn't blessed with any, we bought a house. Uh, but anyway. <laughs> My question is, you, the two of you were just talking about the scenario of the uh, single woman that came in with children, you know, on the lease and everything, and then a boyfriend came in to live. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to figure out what the definition, uh, and you said that would not, buy, uh, would not be part of the definition of a family unit or something. What is the definition of a family unit or a family whatever you 
called it. Those types of families that the Fair Housing Law protects are the traditional family, a mother, father, children that are 17 and under. Um, The other type of family that the Fair Housing Law protects are single heads of household, be it, you know, uh, men or women. Uh, who have children 17 and under, pregnant women, the fetus, you you don't count. You know, if you go in and you had a property that had two units, uh, two bedrooms in it, and uh, there's a family of four, you see the mom's pregnant, um, you cannot say, I'm sorry, it looks like you're going to be, you know, having, you know, more additions to your family, so no, you can't rent it. You don't count th- that fetus, so the the female is protected when it comes to pregnancy. And then the individual who has guardianship or custody of children are also protected. So if you have a grandmother that has guardianship or foster parents or adopted uh, children in a family situation, then that whole family type is protected. What the law doesn't cover are children who are 18 and up with their parents. You know, now that's awkward, but... Um, that's how the law sees those families that are protected. Right. Um, okay, uh, I'm sorry to interrupt, but mm-hmm. my next question then on that would be: I have known people who are, you know, gay, mm-hmm. and in fact, the one fellow happened to be married, and his wife had passed away, mm-hmm. and of course, he has custody of his children, and he decided, or whatever, you know, I don't know how to put it, mm-hmm. that he was gay. Yes. And so he and his partner mm-hmm. live together. Now, I'm not saying they've had any of these issues. This is just a scenario. Mm-hmm. Um, and they ha- he's, of course, got custody of his two children. Yes. So he would n- they would not be protected because they're not a husband and wife uh, of a traditional family. So a So what I'm hearing being said is a landlord could uh, says, you know, say no. You can't live here because you're not a traditional family. Well, under the Fair Housing Act, there's no protection. Um, There are, uh, say, for example, uh, under familial status, um, Mm -hmm. that person wouldn't have protection because as of this moment uh, in private housing, um, the individual doesn't have protection under the Fair Housing Act as it stands now. However, HUD has been... Uh, making adjustments and it's public housing so if you were to manage public housing for metropolitan housing authority or Mm -hmm. if you were in subsidized housing that was uh, project-based housing where uh, you were getting HUD funds or any property that gets HUD funding or government funding they are recognizing um, the uh, partner of people with uh, uh, same-sex uh, relationships. So okay. in HUD housing, they honor that family description. Uh, okay. And the law is being looked at from uh, Congress now to make that inclusive, that this is a okay. new type of family description that the right. Fair Housing Act, as it stands now, doesn't cover. But under right. all HUD housing or any funding that um, HUD releases for housing, that family uh description for uh, sexual orientation is covered. Okay. The other scenario, and I just thought of this, is I have a friend at work that uh, is pregnant. Mm-hmm. She lives with her boyfriend. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, you know, obviously, and the father of the child, but they're not married. So do they have to be married? You know, that makes it a father but a boyfriend, and who decides 
you know, other than the mother saying yes and the father saying yes, this is going to be my child. Okay, under you, know, you see what um, I'm saying? I know, I know. Yeah. I'm throwing these out, but I've met so many people over the years that it's like, wow, where do you draw the line, or where do you? Yeah, you know. The family, uh, yeah, the family as it used to be is changing, <laughs> and oh, yeah. I think that's why our, our government is looking <laughs> at the definition of family. So right. right, right as we speak, you know, they're looking at the definition of family. I would like to say, in certain local areas, say for example, Cincinnati, um, you have other local jurisdictions that do protect under Cincinnati Human Ordinance. They do have a protection for. Um, individuals that cohabit so here you know that individual that cohabits probably would be protected here but as far as familial status okay if i were to file a complaint let's say your friend and her and and her boyfriend and the baby file a complaint hey you know you're you're not allowing my boyfriend to stay here because we're not married or what have you they would not be covered under the law as it stands now Okay, as it describes a family. So those protected mm-hmm. classes that I just described to you, if it's outside of that jurisdiction that doesn't protect cohabitation, right? Then that and would... and I'm not saying I agree with everything, uh-huh. but you know it is coming up to this, and you know I guess if I was, uh, which I am single now, I'm widowed actually, mm-hmm. and uh, you know want I don't know had a child that I was going to be taken care of, I think right. I put a wedding ring on. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Well, you know, most people, uh, you know, are open to, you know, the partner and also the children together. So, right. Speaking um, as a landlord, yes. that, you know, that situation, if that's a, if they're operating as a family unit and, you know, both parties are going to be involved with raising the kids and supporting the household and hopefully working yeah. and contributing... It, it doesn't make sense for a landlord to say, oh, I don't want that sort of family. Right. Even though right. the law may permit you, it's it's probably not a good situation. I mean, I, I love seeing, even if they're not married, you know, I like seeing two-parent households. Mm-hmm. I like seeing right. when the, the, the term now is baby daddy is involved with the family and helping right. contribute to the household. Right. Uh, well, and, and of course, this family, this couple was living together. And now she's pregnant, so it's not even the child's not even here yet. So I can't imagine they say, "Okay, eh, you're out." Well, uh, <laughs> you thank you very much. Appreciate yeah. your questions. No problem. Uh-huh. You have a good evening. You too. Now right. bye-bye. And we're coming bye-bye. up on our our final break, and when we come back, I've got some questions about housing opportunities made equal, and when what you all do when calls come in, and, and mm-hmm. how they get handled, and whether landlords need to be worried about. Am I going to get in trouble if I call? So mm-hmm. come on back in a few minutes, and we'll have a, a couple of uh, interesting last questions in our last segment. Great. Program support comes from the Kentucky Senior Medicare Patrol at Brighton Center. The Senior Medicare Patrol is a grassroots network of volunteers who educate older adults on how to protect, detect, and report health care fraud. Educating and empowering Medicare beneficiaries to prevent fraud is essential to protecting our citizens and their health benefits. You can volunteer with Kentucky Senior Medicare Patrol to make a difference in the fight against health care fraud by calling 859-491-8303. Well, we now have two accidents on southbound 75. The first is still there, south 75 at the Norwood Lateral. The good news is just one left lane blocked now. 
But a little farther to the north, South 75 at Glendale Milford, there is an accident, and that's blocking the left two lanes. So we still have those uh, accidents. And then on the other side, North 71 at the lateral, the right two lanes are still blocked with an accident there as well. Your forecast tonight, partly cloudy. We'll get down into the upper 50s. Maybe a little rain after midnight, a better chance of rain tomorrow. And again on Friday, a 50% chance. Uh, tomorrow's high around 76, and then Friday's high around 75 degrees. And then uh, looking ahead, looks like temperatures will remain right around 75 degrees, plus or minus 2 degrees through next Wednesday. It's 78 right now here at 89.3 WMKV. Hi, and welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. This is Jim Shapiro with Deb Jetter from Housing Opportunities Made Equal. I want to remind everyone that we're sponsored by the Real Estate Investor Association of Greater Cincinnati. Wonderful organization. Uh, you want to learn about real estate investing, that is the way to go. Uh, Cincinnati RIA, uh, our website is www.cincinnatiria.com. We meet Mondays and, excuse me, the first and third Thursday of the month at the Community Action Agency in Bond Hill. Near the corner, near Swifton Commons, uh, it's the tall new building where the public library is, uh, near Reading Road and Seymour. The meeting's from 6 to 9. Everyone, the public's welcome to come for one meeting and see what you think. We usually have two speakers a night on different real estate topics. We also have a whole series of uh, weekend seminars, uh, subgroup meetings on wholesaling, on uh, landlording, on creative acquisitions, on uh, an east side group, a west side group. It's a wonderful organization for coming and getting involved with real estate, networking, meeting vendors, meeting other investors. Uh, a lot of buying and selling goes on. Great group. Come check us out. Uh, and Cincinnati Rhea sponsors this show, so it's a pleasure to promote them. Uh, what happens when someone calls up? I often encourage people to call Housing Opportunities Made Equal, with your questions. Mm -hmm. You know, the one that last woman, Eileen, was asking, if I was in that situation and I wasn't sure how I could handle it, mm -hmm. I would call up. I'd say, hey, Deb, tell me the right way to do this. What are the laws about this? Sometimes landlords are scared that if they call home, they could get in trouble. Mm -mm. What, what happens when someone calls home and asks questions about these sorts of topics? Well, we welcome investors to call. Every time I do a training, um, I always encourage individuals to call before they make a decision concerning fair housing compliance. And that's the best way that if I'm not sure about a situation, uh, please, you know, call our office. And we have people on staff that are there to answer questions. It happens every day. Someone, you know, doing property management might want to uh, have a, a question concerning uh, fair housing compliance, and they will call. So we welcome anyone uh, who does that. We even have people who say, I don't want to give my name, but, you know, here's my situation. Can you help me? So uh, we also have our uh, website where they can uh, write questions um, in that particular uh, frame of uh, uh, work there. So uh, we do invite either by way of the Internet or by giving a phone call. We will not um, advise individuals with law, okay? Uh, we're not a legal 
uh, agency giving out legal advice. So if landlords, uh, I had a landlord I talked to the other day and said, you know, this is my first time I ever had an eviction. Can you guide me in what to do? Well, that's something we won't do because, you know, that's a legal matter that they need to call an attorney for. But if it's an issue relating to fair housing, I have a situation with a person who has a disability. Can you tell me what I have to do as a landlord? That type of question will be happy to assist someone with. Now, the the Housing Mediation Service Group, mm-hmm. uh, what happens when someone calls up and they've got a situation you know, and they want to either they want to get help or they got a complaint. I understand that the first thing that happens is you will offer to refer it to mediation, mm-hmm. so that that can be mediation between a landlord and a tenant, mm-hmm. or two tenants in a building, or tenants and neighbors, or landlords and neighbors. Right, anybody's eligible. Right, we have an excellent mediation uh, staff um, that's separate from home, but. That particular service was created by your organization, RIA, uh, the Greater Cincinnati Northern Kentucky Apartment Association, and HOME. So together, um, these great agencies and organizations came together to create this service for investors who want to have a win-win situation. Uh, 60 cases a year go through uh, this mediation service. So uh, if tenants have conflict, if landlord and a tenant has a conflict, then this is a great way to have a process to have a win-win situation, both for the tenant and the landlord. And sometimes those could be things that could otherwise end up in a fair housing complaint and instead end up being worked out Mm-hmm. through a mediation process. Absolutely. Uh, is there any cost for that it service? It is so free that it's right. just a good gift to have. Well, that's a great investors. organization. <laughs> uh, I encourage anyone, you know, there's nothing more expensive than a, to a landlord than losing a tenant. Mm-hmm. Once that unit goes vacant, all sorts of things can happen. You've got losses, you've got damages, you've got to clean and paint and carpet, uh, you have vandalism and copper theft. If, if people can take advantage of the mediation and keep their units occupied and not lose tenants because of a fight with a neighbor or a fight with a landlord, mm-hmm. uh, there are, you know, I know people that have, have really come out of that. And I've been on the board and a past president of Fair Housing Mediation Service. And, uh, and I encourage people to look at that because it's a wonderful resource. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, you know, one of the things if something really goes bad is it a case can go in front of the it's it's the Ohio Civil Rights Commission mm-hmm. if someone does violate fair housing law mm-hmm. now you know we talk about the the carrot and the stick you know the carrot is work things out mediate keep your tenants happy uh the stick is if you if you really mess up you know what happens if a case gets referred to the uh, well, let, let me commission. say that um, we have about 500 uh, probable cause situations where uh, people call in and there's uh, there's incidences of uh, fair housing violations. Uh, give me an example. Um, there was a situation where a uh, person with a disability who lived in senior housing uh, had several strokes and she had memory loss. And her grandson would come and visit her, and in that visit... You know, um, she didn't know that he had a criminal background. So in this particular situation, the U.S. Marshals were looking for him, and they followed him at his grandmother's uh, place of residency. And when they followed him, they surrounded the building, and, you know, there was a lot of drama going on. And because of this situation, 
um, the management wanted to evict her because of uh, there are no tolerance for any kind of crime activity, whatever, what have you. And they felt that she was aiding him and, you know, uh, hiding him. But the situation was our agency intervened, got documents from her doctor saying that she had no idea that he had any kind of criminal background, that she had no clue of what was happening, and they were going to evict her. But home mediates and solves the problem where she's still there. So many times, home will intervene, work with management, work with the owner for situations where that can happen, easy cases that can be resolved, that do have a potential of going beyond, but we try to work it out before it gets there. If there is a 903 filed by an individual because there's a violation of their rights, stronger cases, then that can go before the Ohio Civil Rights Commission. The uh, respondent, which is the person alleged to have violated the fair housing law with this uh, resident or applicant uh, looking for equal opportunity, um, they, they, ha they have a right, the respondent, to say, hey, I'll mediate or, you know, I'm not going to mediate and I want, you know, a higher level of resolve. So that's the process that goes on with the Ohio Civil Rights Commission. Now, my understanding is that typically, even if you go to, if you end up going to the Civil Rights Commission and fighting a case, even if you win, you can expect as much as ten thousand dollars in legal costs to fight your. Well, fight that depends. That depends on if I hire a lawyer and you know all those types of things. Some people choose to have legal representation; others don't. So it just depends yeah. on the settlement made. Whether I have to pay as a landlord, you know, legal cost or what have you. So it just depends on each case-by-case -case situations of how much money I might have to pay. I think the, the best lesson I could suggest is learn your fair housing laws, uh, learn these rules, call home and ask questions. Absolutely. And avoid getting in that situation. Uh, and, you know, and don't discriminate. There is, you know, the... I believe there's far more discrimination going on in housing, and like the woman who called me up, and I believe she was being discriminated not because she had a family, but because from the sound of her voice, she sounded like a minority, and and she was running into uh, repeatedly being told, no, we don't accept children, but she just didn't want to have the fight. But mm -hmm. those landlords that were telling her, no, we don't accept children in their five-bedroom houses, uh, they could open themselves up to a world of legal legal trouble by mm -hmm. doing that. And I would invite uh, individuals that have never had fair housing training to please uh, become educated in fair housing compliance here in the greater Cincinnati area. Home does a lot of classes for free. Call us. We'll be happy to train you at no expense to you. Uh, Rhea has uh, you and some members of your team come in every year, once or twice mm -hmm. a year. You're at our vendor night. Yes. Uh, housing the housing mediation service comes in. So there's a, there's a lot of training. I'll tell you that as a realtor, I'm a licensed agent, uh, fair housing was probably the single biggest subject that covered in almost every class in my realtor education to get my license. Fair housing was brought up in every context mm -hmm. in, in, in how to show houses and how to uh, market houses and in, in the legal issues. Uh, it is perhaps one of the biggest subjects in the realtor education. It's a very serious subject. Uh, it's so, the heartbeat of a person's business, you know, whether they're in leasing or, you know, um, real estate professional. Selling. It's exactly what you do from the time you think about purchasing property to the very 
end of terminating someone, that there are fair housing issues and prevention you want to think about. All right. Well, we are out of time today. Deb, thank you so thank much you. for joining us. Uh, and everyone out there, uh, thank you for being with us today. And we'll look forward to uh, come back next week to hear Vina and uh, help you get on the path to your own real estate career. <laughs>